All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 82 of Crow Triple Seven Radio. I have Jason Lingram with me, and we are going to go at the illusory construct that is zero hidden in our base 10 system. Um, to reiterate, this channel is still existing under two bullying strikes. Not sure who got bullied, but what it comes down to is we can't have conversations on YouTube anymore about things that matter or we risk losing our channels that we've put all this work into. So having said that, there will be a single link down in the description to Crow 777 Radio. Uh, no login required. You can get the first free hour. You just push play and you're on your way. Of all the episodes Jason and I have done recently, this one is kind of important to me. I think it matters. I think the ideas that we cover and express here are foundational to understanding the loss of common sense in the age of scientism, the kind of illusory world uh, that we live in that is so heavily driven now by binary computers, the base 10 system, and all this theoretical nonsense that is constantly trying to convince us all of a thing we shouldn't believe in. Um, I've gotten to the point now when I hear the word theoretical, in my mind I just I think BS um, right out of the gate. And we get into these things. We cover the Big Bang. We cover possibly where the idea of zero came from. It's kind of a hidden thing uh, as we got into the research. As we did the research, I went down the research line of investigating nothing or no thing. Jason went down the, the road uh, of the history of zero. This is a heck of an ex episode. The ideas that are contained w within this episode, in my view, really matter to the average mind that wants to consider how we came to be where we are in this kind of modern dream state. Anyhow, to reiterate, there will be a single link down in the description that will take you to Crow 777 Radio. No login needed. You just push play and you can actually hear a conversation about things that matter. That's no longer possible on YouTube due to the modern day book burning and censorship. I hope to see you all over there. Jump down, take the click, come on over to Crow 777 Radio. If you'd like to be a member, that's fantastic. If you just want that first free hour, that's fantastic too. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 82. I have Jason Lingram with me, and we are going to do a show about nothing. Um, and while Seinfeld made that popular in the 90s, it's actually not possible to do a show about nothing, and that is truly what this show is about. We're going to set out uh, to show that the concept of zero has no basis in nature, in reality, that it is a fraudulent idea, and that in terms of the natural world, it has no place, no existence. Um, I recently wrote a blog, which is on crow777radio.com, but having said that, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. Let's talk about absolutely nothing. Yeah, let's try. I mean, it's not a possible thing, is it? No, no, it's not. It's an interesting research for this episode. Very, very, very interesting indeed. Yeah, you know, it was about two weeks ago that I got going on this, and we'll get into this during the episode. It had to do with numerology, and I've been thinking about this for years. And uh, when I realized that a, a number in basic numerology held its value when added to nine, that's really what pushed me over the edge to start writing the blog and then to get with you to start doing the uh, research for this episode. But do you have anything you want to cover before we jump in? Well, let's just point out that the censorship stuff seems to have eased off a little bit finally. I still, thankfully, have never received anything on my Secrets of Saturn channel. No attacks, no strikes, anything like that. And you haven't had any sort of problems with the website, so hopefully whomever has let off for now. Let me address both those topics. 
As for YouTube, it has become so apparent that it is a platform where we can no longer talk about things that matter, that the truth is I've been uploading three-minute clips, um, so I really haven't posted anything that matters, steering everyone over to Crow 777 Radio um, to get the free episode without a login. You know, we're providing that now, but uh, on the other side of the coin, I recently had some of my kind of hacker friends back in on my website to to do some updates and changes. And so, yes, we have had a quiet week. Uh, knock on wood. Hopefully it'll stay that way. The site is very secure, but you know how it goes. Search engines and everything else can play a role in what happens. My bounce rate was really high, which is what got me going. But we're going to cover the idea of zero here, Jason. And before we start in, you and I are going to run a timeline and as we have said so many times, history is a lie agreed upon. Um, we're going to draw from publicly available information that talks about historical times and places. In the timelines, you know, we'll talk about things like Sumer, and I've stated endlessly on this show that I have problems with the history we've been handed, but it doesn't detract from why you and I are using it because it is publicly available, because it is the accepted history. But in terms of the concept of zero, things like Sumer are really going to play into this. Anyhow, anything else before we jump? It's all, of course, very hard to ever know if the information we're using is spot on accurate or not. It's it's what we've got to work with. And I try to cross-reference things, especially when you start getting farther and farther back in history. Or is that further and further back in history? It is what it is. Like, we have to use what, we, what we've got. So the one thing I'm noticing, as we've spoken about before, is some things are very hard to find when you start looking for them, and, and other things are not. So this one, uh, I didn't find a lot that might be construed as conspiratorial and all that, other than the, the, the kind of little revelation I came up with at the very, very end, which we'll get to at the end of hour two. No, you know, I view zero as one of the foundational constructs that begins to pull the entire world out of reality. As a matter of fact, Jason, I will probably knock out another blog this week, uh, two back to back here pretty quickly, on the idea of the loss of common sense in the age of scientism. Zero is one of these things, man. You have to cast common sense aside, but we have been so indoctrinated, and the fact is we can't really do math or higher math without zero now. Um, but when it comes down to brass tacks, zero has no place in the natural world, and it's demonstrable. And when I wrote the blog, which is what started all this, um, I, I followed up by doing the research. You know, I was I was going down the research path of nothing. You were going down the research path of the idea and historical uses of zero. And what I found was there were a ton of people in history, not only that, up into the modern age, physicists that were saying things about the Big Bang, which I was going to include in the blog. It's nonsense. Um, one physicist, a noted physicist, said something to the effect, why don't we just attribute the beginning of the universe to a strip of rubber? You know, these kinds of ideas where there's still common sense in this world. The problem is, is it's the cult of personality. We go with what's popular. And what's popular right now is the Big Bang, which is nonsense. And we'll get into these things. But anyhow, Jason, let's go ahead and jump into this thing proper. And I'll try to start to frame up some historical usages of zero right out of the gate after the first bullet. Right. So after our conversation about what this episode is going to be about, I pretty much came up with the, the concept that the idea behind this episode is to demonstrate how our very basis of numerical thinking could actually be the very thing that is at the heart of all the deceptions that we live under. And it's a deception yes. that starts yes. from the ground up. 
because the earliest things we That's learn right. about as very young children are our numbers and, of course, our letters as well. The concept of zero, or more to the point, the idea that nothing is something, is actually introduced to us extremely young. So it's it's something that's common knowledge right from the beginning. Well said, Jason. I mean, for those of us who are old enough to remember Schoolhouse Rock, we can remember the uh, the My Hero Zero little skit they did. You know, so many remember things like Conjunction Junction, but one of those skits they did was My Hero Zero to embed the idea of zero. But let's talk about some historic crossovers um, that are built into the foundational identities that we follow through history um, using zero. Uh, one of the obvious ones is ground zero. Now, the first apparent use of the term ground zero comes from the Trinity site, which is supposedly where they tested the first nuclear bombs. Now, again, I'll reiterate, you and I have demonstrated that there are no nuclear weapons in the way they've been described. So this whole Trinity thing, this whole thing we're about to talk about is more of history being a lie agreed upon in my view. And I don't think nuclear weapons are arguable, by the way, just to put it out there. But anyhow, the Trinity test site which is where they coined the term, apparently, Ground Zero, was in the Hornada del Muerto Desert near Socorro. Words have meaning. Hornada del Muerto actually means uh, journey of the dead man. And then when we get to the Socorro idea, this one was not so easy to translate. People may correct me out there who are a little bit better at the last Latin-based languages than I am. But I believe Socorro means help. And the funny thing is, is help is a funny idea because it could be, um, can you give me some help or could it be help exclamation point? I saw it translated both ways. But then the idea of ground zero was further pushed up after the supposed initial nuclear tests, which were fraud, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I don't need to tell anyone listening, that brings us all the way up to September 11, the 9-11 nonsense, where ground zero is implemented again. So in my view, we are looking at exactly what you said, Jason, zero as foundational fraud, as a construct to pull the human mind out of reality in this system, and then echoed in nonsensical events like the supposed nuclear weapons and the whole 9-11 thing. But there's that, Jason. Words have meaning, and sometimes you have to look at the etymology of the word to see what sort of symbolic meanings might be behind it. So the etymology of the word zero. Circa 1600, either from Middle Latin zephyrum or French zero, or its source Italian zero, or zephyro, in any case, uh, it comes from the Arabic cipher, S-I-F-R, which became cipher, which is itself a translation of the Sanskrit Sunya, empty place, desert, or not. So there's your concept of nothing built into zero. Now, cipher comes from the late 14th century from the Arabic cipher and also from uh, safara to be empty or sunya meaning empty. The word cipher came to Europe with the Arabic numerals and we'll get into that history in a minute. Not is a variant of not, which means nothing. So the meaning of zero cipher is only from the early 15th century. And that's right in that era again where we start uh, getting very suspicious about what things may have gone on in history. A cipher, a code, the Jesuits, all that. Who knows what was really going on? Well, clearly the church controlled most of uh, most of the knowledge base for the Western world at that point. So I totally smell the hand of the Jesuit order in this. Um, I'm not afraid to say it, but there's so many things in what you just talked about here. The idea of cipher, 
of course, echoed in the Matrix movies as one of the main characters who betrays everybody, Cypher. Um, the funny thing about the word is, as you pulled it up through Arabic, it literally meant empty, referring to a desert. Well, there's a far cry between the idea of something being empty or barren like a desert and the idea of nothing. And this is where we start to see the hand of construction coming to bear here. And eventually, uh, in the 1500s, the word cipher gets the the meaning coded message put to it. Well, truer words were never spoken. Um, if, if any portion of our existence is coded, it's got to be zero because zero has no existence. It has no place in reality, which we will further seek to demonstrate as we get in here. But um, Jason, when we got up to the 15th century, I know you thought independently exactly what I thought, that this is a time attributed to the church control all knowledge, this is almost certainly um, the implementation of the way we use zero today, um, which goes against the, the acceptable history, I might add, is probably put in place by the Jesuit order. Right. As soon as, historically speaking, the, the Arabic numerals, it went from India into, into the Middle East and then from there into the Western areas. And as soon as it got into the Western areas, you know the church would have gotten their hands on it, and goodness only knows from there. So, that plus the fact that every time we get into this era, circa the 1500s, 1600s, I'm automatically looking for suspicious behavior at this point because of the work we've done on the Jesuits and the timeline. Because as you and I have discussed many times, minimally, there's probably a couple of hundred years that's been jerked around with, just to, to put it minimal. Right. I, I, I think I would put that closer to a millennium, Jason. I think I, I have landed that I think there's about a thousand years off between the acceptable history that we all read about and what actually happened. And in my view, as far as we can tell, it looks like probably the Jesuit order was the hidden hand behind that whole thing. Um, even even in as much as the people who brought us the history, people like Josephus have a direct relationship, if not having been Jesuits themselves. But let's jump back one and actually throw the wiki definition of nothing or zero out just to get it on record, because this is what most people will see when they look it up. Right. So the Wikipedia definition of nothing or no thing Nothing is a concept denoting the absence of something and is associated with nothingness. In non-technical uses, nothing denotes things lacking importance, interest, value, relevance, or significance. Nothingness is the state of being nothing or the state of non-existence of anything or the property of having nothing. So this is kind of a weird definition when you look at it, but I would suggest that the truth has been encoded into this definition in non-technical uses, nothing denotes things lacking importance, interest, value, or relevance or significance. And I think that's a true thing. Basically, what, what they're saying here is zero has no relevance or significance. And that is true. Um, it is not possible to live in a material world logically. And uh, we'll get to other people supposedly way back in history who, who said versions of this very thing. Um, we live in a material world. It's a 3D reality or a 4D if you want to count the temporal time aspect of where we are um, that has everything in it. Everything is here. In my view, it's a closed system. Nothing subtracted, nothing added ever. Um, but my point here would be this. 
it is not possible to have the absence of everything in a place that has everything. It's just not possible. You can logically go at this six ways to Sunday and logically you cannot work out that zero or nothingness has any value in a natural system. But anyhow, Jason, back to you. What's interesting here is if you bear in mind while we're going through the history that there may be several hundred years up to a millennium missing, that might actually make a lot of sense when you see how long it took for the the numerals to basically go from one culture to the next. If you eliminate all that extra time, it actually makes a little more sense, to be perfectly honest with you. So bear that in mind once we start going through the the, the timeline here. Well, well, hold on, Jason, because you you just pointed out uh, from the Arabic idea, and we still call our number system Arabic numerals. Um, so there's a, a direct inheritance there that I think we could demonstrate. But the idea in Arabic was literally empty, and they compared it to a desert. This is not the idea of zero that we now have in base 10. Somewhere along the line, it shifted. And again, uh, I think if we had to guess at a venture in our fraudulent history line, why not? The 15th century, nonetheless, I suspect the Jesuit order. But anyhow, sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. So let's talk about the base 10 system. Now, a base system is how numbers are grouped and used. It is said in the mainstream notion of things that we use a base 10 because we have 10 fingers, easy to count with, right? Many other systems exist, of course, and have been, and in some places still are, used in different cultures and areas of science. But what is the base 10 system? Base 10 is also called the decimal system or denarii system. In base 10, each digit in a position of a number can have an integer value ranging from 0 to 9, which gives 10 possibilities. The places or positions of the numbers are based on powers of 10. For example, hundredths, tenths, tens, hundreds, thousands, on and on and on. Another example would be the sexagesimal or the base 60 system that uses, of course, 60 as its base. And this originated with the ancient Sumerians in the 3rd millennium BC, which was then passed down to ancient Babylon. It is actually still used in a modified form for measuring time, angles, and geographic coordinates. And it's interesting how 60 or 6 with a 0 is used in relation to time, as is Saturn related to time with its supposed hexagonal atmospheric formation and the six-point star attributed to Saturn. Lots of things, 6, Saturn, 6, 0, and we'll get into more to that later. Right. And one of the things that we've pointed out again and again on this show is why the hell do we use base 10? Why not base 15? Why not base 20? Why not base 60? And this bullet point kind of starts to underscore the importance of this idea. Uh, In my view, base 10 is a construct. It was put in place to limit um, human minds. And the idea of zero is wrapped into base 10, which we'll get into in a second here. But when we consider that some form of base 60 is actually still used, it's the same problem that got me thinking about this in the first place. If we have base 10 and it's good enough, why the hell do we need to jump over to base 60 to do angles and, and time and all these other things? Early on in my career uh, in the internet in the 90s, uh, it became pretty clear that hexadecimal was used to deal with all color. That's what originally got me thinking about it. Well, if we got a base 10 system, why do we need hexadecimal? And it was pretty clear, understanding how it all works, that hexadecimal did a better job for what was needed to deal with color in in a binary or computer system. So clearly, um, I began to question from that point forward, what's up with base 10? If base 10 is the be-all and end-all, then why do we need to switch over to hexadecimal? Why are we still using forms of base 60? But here's what really latched it for me. 
I don't know, I've been thinking about this for years, but a couple weeks ago, this, this is what really dawned on me. I was thinking about some of the older forms of numerology where you basically have one through nine. You deal with all numbers in a single digit manner where you reduce everything back to a single digit. So people understand the basic idea of this very old type of numerology. Um, you, you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. If you get to 10, you add the one and the zero, bringing you back to one, starting the cycle over. Over. In other words, nine is the completion number. This plays into 911, believe me. Go read my blog if you want to know more about that. But my point here is. As I began to think about it, I did a very simple thing. I added 5 to 10, and I came up with 15. In basic numerology, you would add the 1 and the 5 coming to 6. So 5 added to 10 did not hold its value and comes back to 6 in basic numerology. On the other hand, when you add 5 to 9, you get 14. When you add the 1 and the 4, 5 holds its value when added to the completion number. This is what really put me over the top because a simple logical deduction as follows gets you where you need to go here. How is it possible that 10, one plus zero in basic numerology is equal to one plus nine? In modern math, we would say one plus nine is 10 and one and zero is 10, but the point is dissemble it in the way I have just explained and answer the following question. How is it possible that one plus nine can be equal to one plus zero? That is what the base 10 system is basically asking you to accept and it's nonsensical. So I don't know, did you follow all that, Jason? It's interesting. Nine seems to have a, a very large amount of power as far as mathematics, and I can't remember exactly how this works, and I meant to look this up, but somehow when you when you do the equations, everything always breaks back down to nine. So nine seems to be the center of the universe as far as mathematics go, and uh, I'll try and clarify that more if I can. Well, I think it's been referred to as the God number in some circles, and I think what you're getting to is the idea of multiplying nine, um, where you always come back to nine. It's a multiplier thing, I think. Um, we'll have to look it up as we as we get into this. But uh, in my view, in the blog I just wrote, I was claiming that it seems likely to me that the ancient form of numerology, which probably precedes the idea of base 10 and the way we have it today, is remembering the fact that zero has no basis in reality. So... Anyhow, back to you. So let's get more into zero. Zero as merely a placeholder seems to have been used in a whole bunch of ancient civilizations, mostly for keeping tallies of things. The Babylonians, of course, got their number system, as we said, from the Sumerians, who were the first people in the world to develop an actual counting system. This developed, according to mainstream history anyway, somewhere between four to 5,000 years ago. The Sumerian system was positional, as in the value of a symbol depended on its position relative to the other symbols being used. A possible ancestor to the placeholder zero may have been a pair of angled wedges used to represent an empty number column, but there is disagreement with scholars about that. The Sumerian system passed through the Akkadian Empire to the Babylonians around 300 BC, and it was there that a symbol appeared that most certainly seemed to be a placeholder, that is, a way to tell 10 from 100, for example. Initially, the Babylonians left an empty space in their cuneiform number system, but when that became confusing, or that's what we assume was happening, they started adding a symbol, which would be this double-angled wings to represent this former empty column. However, no one seemed to develop the idea of zero as a number until far, far later. 
So the ideas being expressed here, I think, are valid. But as I have stated so many times, I don't accept the Sumerian, the whole Sumerian thing. I don't accept the time frame for the Sumerian thing. And I don't accept cuneiform in the way we've been handed it. But there are some interesting things in here because you're being told that zero was a placeholder. Well, zero is not a placeholder. The, the idea of zero is nothing, nothingness, the absence of everything. A placeholder is something altogether different. So what we're being told here is they're trying to equate the modern idea of zero with these placeholders. Those are two different things. But the interesting thing is we're being told that the placeholder was represented by two angled wedges. Anyone who's seen cuneiform could instantly see that two angled wedges basically looks like 11. Um, are we looking at the beginning of the casting of the spell here? Are we looking at the root, the foundation, the nonsensical paradigm of zero being invented here and again that magical 11 being implemented to kind of begin the casting of the spell in this what i consider to be a nonsensical history i don't know i don't know how you would ever verify these things but that's where i'm coming from right now again like we were saying about the timeline the fact that it took hundreds of years supposedly in mainstream history for zero to change from just a symbol being used as a placeholder to actually being not a number, an actual number being used. It seems like it took an awful long time for, some, for it to just dawn on someone, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, there's so much here, Jason. Even if we were to accept this history at face value, we could instantly understand that these people were closer to nature, to the reality of this place we live, this perfect system we call nature. From our point of view, it appears to be perfect, and they have no concept of zero by the stated historical accounts, all right? What they have is a placeholder. They don't have the idea of the lack of everything or zero. And again, you know, to put a fine point on it, this is an integral part of base 10. In my view, base 10 was put in place to limit us, to begin to facilitate science and the corruption that is scientism and all these things that are being brought to bear in the modern age now, where we basically have you know, artificial intelligence is being given citizenship in this world. This is a darkness coming over our natural world. This is a replacement system. I think it was always intended to be such. I think we have a group of people out there who are seeking to replace what we call the natural existence and that the base 10 idea and the idea of zero play prominently in this push. Um, We'll get more into this, Jason. We're going to have to cover some of the supposed ancient accounts of other people who went at whether or not the idea of nothing can even exist. So It's interesting that you mentioned the AI thing and all that because a traditional computer, a binary computer, works off of ones and zeros. It has two possibilities, on and off. A quantum computer, which is what you actually need to have AI to be able to do the computations actually works with a third digit or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it has on, it has off, and then it has both states. So when you were mentioning that base 10 is kind of limiting, already you can see that base 10 would be more applicable to a binary system, but this quantum computing thinking is a very different animal indeed. Of course it is. And I would point out that even in the binary, you're taught ones and zeros. Well, that zero is not a zero. It's not the absence of anything. It's just off. It's either an open circuit or a closed circuit. Maybe that's a more accurate way to view it. But you make a good point here, Jason. Um, so we have the whole world running on binary, but yet these special people with quantum computers now have a third state where on and off are a state in itself, and it can do the computations much more quickly, we are told. But 
these ideas are going to creep into so many things and sifting through to see what is true, like nuclear weapons, not true. Um, ground zero attached to all these ideas. 9-11, not true. Ground zero attached to these ideas. When we get back over into the world of mathematics that has used negative numbers and zero and all these things, we can actually point to ways that they've implemented so it's almost like they have conjured up this darkness that has no basis in the natural world, and they are beginning to construct things with it that actually are in some sense of the word. So I don't know if you were able to follow that kind of labored line of logic. Well, basically what we can say is we can see how zero and the concept of zero and nothingness is tied in symbologically to so much of our world. It's, it's, it's used to implant ideas. Right. Um, but you see, we've reached kind of a funny age, and this will probably be the basis of my next blog, where all common sense has been thrown out the window for the popularity of what I'm going to call scientism. We can call it science if you want. Science is a corruption in my book. Um, if you wanted to get back to more natural ways, more alchemical ways where science was in tune with nature and where scientific processes actually had a concern with the environment, I think that's the true way. Um, science is not this. It has no concern for nature. But when we begin to get into where science is beginning to take us, there's all these fraudulent ideas, things like the Big Bang, things like evolution, things that we can logically, with common sense as human beings, work out in our minds that these things are not possible, yet they become foundational to the systems and constructs being built moving forward. And I think that's really the main thrust of this episode, Jason, is to just try to point out the constructed, nonsensical nature of so much of what we are accepting as normal in the world right now. And also what we're trying to do is deconstruct the deception at its most foundational level. We're trying to say what may have been established to really begin the obfuscation of everything. What's What would be the, the very foundational thing that would confuse us from the beginning? And that's kind of what we're going at here. And I, I think we're identifying it. And uh, even the bullet point where you're pointing out the Arabic idea of nothing was equated you know, to like a desert, the empty space of a desert. That's a far cry from the idea of nothingness, the absence of everything, no thing. And to be honest, Jason, as I got into the research and I did cross over to zero for a while, I found conflicting reports on, you know, things like how the Mayans may or may not have used zero, where there's people saying flat out, oh, yeah, the Mayans independently invented. There's other people saying not so fast. Um, these are hard things to know. You know why? Because like cuneiform, there's three people in the world who know how to read it, supposedly. Um, so this construct is protected by the very inability and inaccessibility of many people in the world to be able to look at it and do anything with it. So much of it is insulated in this way when we look at these historical accounts. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the classical philosophical period with Parmenides of Elea from the late 6th or early 5th century BC. He was a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher in what was called the Greater Greece area at the time. He was the founder of the Eleatic school of philosophy. The single known work of Parmenides is a poem called On Nature, which has survived only in fragmentary form. In this poem, Parmenides describes two views of reality. In The Way of Truth, which is a part of the poem, he explains how reality, which is coined as what is, is one aspect of it. Change is impossible, and existence is timeless, uniform, necessary, and unchanging. In The Way of Opinion, 
he explains the world of appearances in which one's sensory faculties lead to conceptions which are false and deceitful. He has been considered to be the founder of metaphysics or ontology. Okay, so there's quite a bit here, but I'll cut it down um, for 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 you know for our necessary coverage of it. So basically, when we look at what this last part is telling us, he's making these claims about what he's calling nature. So this is where I think we all need to begin to shift back to to nature. When you look at a tree, there is no lie. When you learn something from a bird, there is no lie. When you see the seasons come and the snow or the summer, there is no lie in what we will learn from these things. Um, that's what this man is talking about. But when we start to push it up, he echoes an idea that is in almost every Eastern tradition you'll ever see, is that you get led into illusion by your sensory faculties, by sight, sound, taste, smell, um, these things. This is a reoccurring idea over and over and over. And I would suggest that even the idea of the implementation of zero by the Jesuits, if I had to guess, and I am guessing, you know, I, I can't back that to any great degree other than the period of time it's attributed to. They're playing on your sensory faculties when they insert these nonsensical ideas. And part of them are not – part of what's being played on here is not actually sight, sound, or taste, but these other kind of lesser – under-the-surface ideas like nostalgia and these other things that we've covered on this show. But uh, I think it's very critical to point out that even though they're attributing this guy to the 5th century BC, which is arguable all day long in my view, the idea of what he is pointing out is that people are easily led astray into falsehood by their sensory faculties. So I don't know how well I, I went at that, Jason. Well, it seems like he, what he's pointing out is there's reality and then there's perception, and those are two different things. Exactly. Exactly. You know, in some of the Buddhist traditions, um, they, they will make comments like, uh, well, the, the, the colors blinded my lying eyes, you know, um, <laughs> this kind of idea where, you know, the rose was so beautifully red, I was led astray. You know, it's this idea of my eyes were lied to by the senses, um, this kind of idea. And I think I think it's a critical thing for people to keep in mind because, you know, your television plays on that media plays on that. Every time you see a video of some gun violence, where for some reason there's another person in this world that just had to kill 60 or 70 people. It's the similar idea where your senses are being brought to bear against you and common sense is being chucked out the window as a result. Well, just taking that concept and applying it to today, perception being reality, I mean, that's how they manipulate us to begin with. It's all this crap that they throw at us to create a reality in your mind, but it's not the actual reality. It's not the truth. So way back when, however long ago this really was, this guy recognized that right off the bat. Right. And in some sense, what we find now in the modern day is herd mentality. We've been so kind of reduced to infantile mindsets that no one is willing to stand up and say, wait a minute, that does not add up. I have a problem with what you're telling me. That is such a common thread in the modern era where we're handed a textbook and we're told about this great guy, Einstein, and all these other people who accept what this great guy did, and nobody but nobody will look at what Einstein did and said, hey, wait a minute here, not so fast. Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm the guy who's going to look at what Einstein did and say, wait a minute, not so fast. As a matter of fact, it will probably come up prominently in the blog I'm about to write. But anyhow, let's get back to Parmenides. Right. Now, this is very interesting. Parmenides argued that 
nothing cannot exist using the following reasoning. To speak of a thing, one has to speak of a thing that exists. Since we can speak of a thing in the past, this thing must still exist in some sense now. And from this, he concludes that there is no such thing as change. As a corollary, there can be no such things as coming into being, passing out of being, or not being. So here's the issue. I think in this bullet point, we have an obfuscation of ideas with the word change. Um, I don't think it's being used properly, and I think it's by intent. Um, I think what is actually being pointed to, uh, the idea that he elucidates here, I agree with wholeheartedly. You can go at this line of reasoning in this way or any number of ways, which I have done over the last two weeks to demonstrate that nothing cannot exist, that it has no natural existence. But the idea of change here, I think, is obfuscating the truth behind the whole matter. And here's why. The one thing we know about existence is change. I mean, if I go out right now, I can see that all the leaves have fallen off the trees. Two months ago, that wasn't the case. That is change. But I don't think that's what's being pointed out here. I I think what he's pointing out is that once we have something in existence, it can never be unexistent or non-existent. I think that is really what's being underlined here and that the sneaky wording that's kind of come into the accounts is making it seem nonsensical when in fact it's completely sensible, completely. I, I will back this probably till the day I drop because I went down not even knowing of Parmenides or Parmenides, whatever the hell his name is, um, I had already gone down all these lines of logic in any number of ways to get to the same result. The idea that nothing cannot possibly have any natural existence. So there's that. Another thing we can point out here is it could just also be at least partially attributed to a language translation thing. The words he may have been using to represent his ideas he was trying to convey may be different than what English is capable of conveying. Well, in a, in a while here, Jason, I think you've got it in the bullet points. I didn't make it to the last one. We're going to actually come across laws that prove what he just said here is true. While at the same time, we have concepts from theoretical people who want to get us all to believe in nonsense, things like the Big Bang. Well, if laws are laws and laws can't be broken, then the Big Bang is provably nonsense. And we can do this with the first law of thermodynamics. We'll get to this. Anyhow, I would point out that the first law of thermodynamics actually backs what this man is saying. And it is a law. We call it a law. It is used in real world application, with first, which further demonstrates its beingness or its actuality, um, for lack of a better way to say that. But anyhow, let's, let's keep pushing through. Yeah, let's talk about another Greek philosopher, Leucippus. From the early 5th century BC, he was one of what was called an atomist and, along with other philosophers of his time, made attempts to reconcile the idea of monism with everyday observations of motion and change. Monism is the view that attributes oneness or singleness to a concept, and there are multiple variations that can be distinguished. The circle dot, or a dot with a circle around it, was used by the Pythagoreans and later Greeks to represent the first metaphysical being, monad, or the absolute. What's interesting that I, I realized real quick was this concept was heavily used in the graphic novel series and later movie, The Watchmen, in regards to a character called Dr. Manhattan. Now, after his transformation to a Superman, or a godlike being, 
He takes his finger and traces out that very symbol on his head to represent himself. This becomes his character. Like Superman has an S, well, he uses the absolute symbol. At the basic concept of the absolute is that it is the truest reality, the exact opposite of nothing. A commonly used symbol for the absolute or the absolute principle of reality was actually the swastika, representing the notion of the god of the universe in its action of manifestation as a whirlwind around the center, which, of course, the Nazis perverted terribly, but also seems very uh, arrogant to me that they would use something meaning the absolute, meaning their absolute power. Right. So, you know, you know how I feel about the Nazis as constructed as anything else in our in our immediate history. So you can see um, an ancient system. You know, when you go to places like uh, Korea to this day, you'll see swastikas used on on Buddhist edifices and other places. But to get back to the idea of the circle with the dot, that is also the current astrological symbol for the sun, which is, I think, why uh, Dr. Manhattan used it as a symbol in the movie. But see, that's an interesting idea because monism, I don't accept uh, monism as it is described to us because logically, if I look at nature, if I see a bunny, guess what I know? There's more bunnies. If I see a daisy, guess what I know? There's more daisies. So restricting myself to the natural world that I'm familiar with, not having any other frame of reference, um, the idea of monism becomes difficult in the same way zero does. But when we begin to look up and see things like the sun, the idea of monism comes back into play, doesn't it? Um, while we're told all those other little stars in the skies are suns, I don't accept that. When I look at the sun that lights this world, in a way, it's the only one I can be aware of in the same way the moon is the only way I can be aware of. So I totally get why the symbol for the sun and monism is the circle with the dot, and that shifted my thinking to understand it is possible to have the idea of monism. But in the natural world, if I pull it down here to where we're walking and living and eating and drinking and you know having children and doing the things we do in the physical, observable reality we call here, um, monism doesn't really have a place. I have to look up to get there. Um, and I know that's kind of a labored, <laughs> a labored attempt to go at that, Jason. What's also interesting about the concept of the dot with the circle around it is that that could also look like the planet Saturn. And the farther back in time you go, it seems that sun symbols and Saturn symbols were interchangeable. That's a concept I'm still tearing apart to this day, but I find it very, very interesting indeed. I think that's a good point, Jason. And, you know, there's the whole idea of a supposed golden age when supposedly Saturn was our sun. To me, it's all allegory because I don't see any basis to make it anything but allegory. It almost seems like symbolic ideas and maybe to the point where I have considered it's a goal for the future. In other words, we see all this construct trying to replace a natural world. And believe me, it is doing a fantastic job. So few of us, if separated from modern systems, could go back out into the mountains or the hills or the prairies and survive because we've been so separated from nature, we've forgotten how to do that. That's what we're talking about here. We're being pulled into an artificial construct where we're all reliant on the new system. See, we used to be reliant on the original perfect from our point of view system, nature. Now there's this whole other dark, artificial, not perfect system that we're all coming to rely on. And I think that is really uh, 
sums up where we're going here. But uh, the idea of Saturn as a sun, Jason, is that truly some golden age from the past? Or is it really an idea about where we're headed in the future? I can't answer that question, but there's definitely a there there somewhere. I just don't know how to uncover it. Right. The part I can't answer is how it seems that ancient civilizations somehow knew that Saturn had rings. That's the part that's always bothered me with this research going way back many years that I've been into this now. How would they have known that? I don't know. Yeah, well, if history is a lie agreed upon, as we assert so often, any attribution can be made to what ancient peoples knew. Someone just had to write it down. Some Jesuit somewhere just had to write, guess what? Romans knew there were rings around Saturn, and there it is. There's our history. Um, This is where I'm coming from. And the real problem with it is we can't verify that one way or the other. In the same way, we can't even really verify if there was ever a Roman Empire in the way we've been told it was. We can't do it. All we have is accounts from a place that had agenda in the biggest way you can ever imagine agenda, basically world domination and spreading one faith to every corner of the world and destroying every kind of ancient culture they came across. They they had the biggest agenda you could ever point to. These are the guys who gave us all these written accounts. And for my part, we can't accept them. So there's that. And before anyone squawks about this, let's just point out once again that the Catholic Church, the Vatican, is the Roman Empire. And there's very good historical evidence for this. When the physical Roman Empire, with all the soldiers and all that, started to break down, they started converting over and just made it a spiritual empire. And I don't think there's anyone who can argue that they still, to this day, wield massive power. So as the centuries rolled by, however the history really did occur, it was in their benefit to control everything and and construct things as they saw fit, as it would have been to their benefit. So keep that in mind when we're discussing these things. We're not sure 100%. We can't prove it. But we definitely see the fingerprints of uh, foul play throughout all these years. Well, let's ask a simple question. We all know that when we're born, we're given a corporate identity called the straw man. Well, who started that? Well, these guys that we're talking about, the church started that. There's who you're looking at. Is that an honest arbiter of information? Hell no. It's the furthest thing from an honest arbiter of information you could get in my view. So again, um, was Constantine a real person? Hell if I know. I mean, I know we go through these timelines and we have to have a basis for conversation, but what do we know about some man supposedly named Constantine? What we know is what the guys who wanted to assign you a corporate identity at birth are willing to tell us. And to me, that's unacceptable. And I think that is really part of the problem in the modern age is so few people are willing to stand up and say, screw that. I don't care how many millions of people said this was true. I don't accept it. I can see the people who are giving us the information. I know the underhanded, just kind of black deeds they have done, which we still live at today. All I got to do is open my wallet and look at the name at the top of my driver's license, written in all capital letters. I know who did that. And that's not an honest conveyance of anything. That is an attempt to control. And when you have people attempting to control who are drunk with power, how the hell do we ever accept any of these historical accounts uh, if we can't logic our way through in some way? Um, that's, that's my point of view, Jason. And to tie that back up again, since you brought up the straw man identity, that comes from Uniform Commercial Code and the ancient Roman Empire with the Admiralty Law. And they used it to control all of the of the monetary systems of the empire so that everything was uniform, so that no matter what port you were at, you could be guaranteed that, that, that the trade and exchange and the money would all work. So 
as we said, the Vatican is the former Roman Empire just transformed. So we can see those telltale signs of how one went to the other. Right. And, you know, basically, these are the arbiters of the supposed history we have. These are the guys that controlled the information. These are the dudes that could write. This was the home of the Jesuit order, which was basically everywhere <laughs> at every turn, just about uh, being involved in things in any historical account you get to. But let's look at it a little more closely. Um when they set up a corporate ID, why were they doing it? Well, because we get back to that simple, simple, basic idea that a human being has the right to make choices. And if you infringe on a human being's right to make choices, you've apparently broken some universal law where now you've got a karma problem or whatever you would call it. When they invented the straw man identity, they created a fake you that could then be compelled to make the real you do things, apparently sidestepping this idea. These are the guys who wrote the books. These are the guys who passed down so much of the Western religious ideas. These are the guys who jacked up our calendar, created our currency, implemented what we now have as modern corporation, these are the guys. So I would just ask on the tale of knowing who these guys are, what can we accept from them at face value? I would suggest we can't, you know, there's not a damn thing we, we can accept at face value. That's, that's where I'm coming from. All I can say to anyone out there is tread softly and carry a big stick because <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what's real. No, but you but you can. You know, I think that's the main point of this episode is you can just grab back your common sense, leave the herd, quit being part of the herd and use common sense. And you will again begin to tread back to some kind of normalcy. At least that's what I'm attempting to do here. Well, the big stick is to, is to fend off the rest of those uh, sheep around you. <laughs> there it is. Now, getting back to the Cepus, he accepted the modest position that there could be no motion without a void. The void is the opposite of being. It is not being. On the other hand, there exists something known as an absolute plenum, which is a space filled with matter, and there can be no motion in a plenum because it is completely full. But there is not just one monolithic plenum, for existence consists of a multiplicity of plenums. These are the invisibly small atoms of Greek atomist theory, which would later be expanded by Democritus, who lived from around 460 BC to 370 BC, according to mainstream, which allows the void to exist between them. In this scenario, macroscopic objects can come into being, move through space, and pass into not being by means of the coming together and moving a part of their constituent atoms. The void must exist to allow this to happen, or else the frozen world of Parmenides must be accepted. So here we have language just making a problem. I don't accept any of that. Um, the whole idea of things coming in and out of existence is nonsense. There is no basis in a natural reality for these things. And as I pointed out earlier, we have things like the law, first law of thermodynamics, which demonstrate we have a real-world functional tool in this law that gets used all the time that demonstrates why this is nonsense. But then they take it to extremes and go back to Parmenides, and they say, well, he has a frozen world. Well, these ideas are without merit because we all live in the world and we know it's not frozen. So this is the same problem we have with modern physicists doing everything theoretical. In my view, 
the word theoretical is interchangeable with BS. It's just an idea. It means nothing. It has no value beyond the fact that it's an idea, but it cannot be implemented into a real-world situation and used at any level until it's proven out one way or the other. In the same way, I can stick my hand in water and tell you that water is cold. I don't need to argue that. I just did it. I observed it. I understand the water is cold. That is the real common sense, no-nonsense approach. But now get over to the theoretical physicists. Well, geez, they got a particle zoo now. They invent a new particle every three days to balance some imaginary equation, which we will all then be asked to accept as some form of our reality, as is evidenced by the Big Bang. The Big Bang is logical nonsense. There are buttloads of physicists and other people out there who will tell you, and in so many of the accounts, it basically says, but this is the most popular idea of the time. Well, did we ever live in a time in this existence when ideas didn't rule, but observation ruled, where I can go kick a rock and say, hey, man, that rock's hard. There it is. We all know rocks are hard now. Anyone who doesn't know, kick a rock. That is the real world. This whole theoretical, nonsensical kind of maze of mental nonsensicalness has been brought to us by scientism and the corruption that is science. And in my view, it is part and parcel of this kind of dark artificial reality, which is replacing our natural world. And, you know, I would invite anyone to come look at these ideas with common sense again and take them apart and come to understand that all this theoretical negative numbers, zeros, all these things which we use now, they have no basis in a natural reality. Uh, it's that simple. Anyhow, Jason. Since we're almost at the top of the hour here, last point I'd like to get into hour one is that Bertrand Russell, who we've discussed many times on this show, many centuries later, of course, would point out that this whole concept we've just been discussing does not exactly defeat the argument of Parmenides, but ignores it by taking the rather modern scientific position of starting with the observed data of motion and all that, and constructing a theory based on the data as opposed to Parmenides' attempts to work from pure logic. Russell also observed that both sides were mistaken in believing that there can be no motion in a plenum, but arguably motion cannot start in a plenum. Cyril Bailey notes that Lysippus is the first to say that a thing, the void, might be real without being a body, and points out the irony that this comes from a materialistic atomist. Lysippus is therefore the first to say that nothing has a reality attached to it. So he's wrong, and he's logically wrong, and I think Bertrand Russell points out a very important, important idea here. In the same way, when I did the research on the Big Bang, as I looked for the evidence that people were using, what I found was there's very damn, there's actually no evidence. What there is, is all these suppositions and other things that work back to support the theory that they've built around it. This is exactly what he's pointing out. Bertrand Russell, centuries later, would point out that this does not exactly defeat the argument of Parmenides, but ignores it by taking a rather modern scientific position. There it is, of starting with the observed data and then constructing a theory based around it. That is so much of the theoretical nonsense we get. That's exactly what he's pointing out. So as we get down to Lucipus at the bottom here, you know, I'll just shout nonsense. But 
he's made a critical point about the corruption that is modern day science, where they're flipping the wheel around here. They're taking observed data and then constructing a theory and nothing has ever worked out one way or the other. We end up with things like the theory of gravity. Well, will there ever be a day when we wake up in this world and gravity is no longer a theory? And I suggest to you that day will never come um, because it's just an idea. But anyhow, Jason, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. Is there anything you want to add in before we wrap it up here? Well, a lot of what we've been discussing is very interesting philosophical notions, but we're going to start getting into the hard data of what zero means as far as actual mathematics is concerned uh, into hour two the, as we walk through this timeline. And again, I'm going to say, as if you listen to hour two, think about the fact that the timeline may be screwed up. There may be too much time because, as I said earlier on in this, ep- uh, in this hour, that it seems to me like it took too long to go from the conception of zero and then being implemented into the rest of culture. But I could be wrong about that. We, we know that, that this is all conjecture. Well, I had similar feelings, Jason, as I did the nothingness side of things here. Um, Not only was there a problem in the amount of time things were taking, there was no really hard, fast boundary in the sand where, bang, this is the guy who invented it. Um, There were all these variations on it, even in the bullet point, which I keep coming back to that you dug out in the zero research, is that in the original Arabic, the idea of emptiness is equated to like a desert far cry from the idea of zero. And yet there is no dividing line to when and where it actually happens, except we think it might have been around what they call the 15th century, again, which has Jesuit written all over it. The real thrust of what we're trying to cover here, and it's it's a hard thing to do, is to point out that the very basis of the base 10 foundational counting system that drives almost all science and other things in our world has an imposter in it called zero, an imposter that has no natural existence, which logically can be shown to have no logical, or, you know, natural existence. But furthermore, where other laws and things that we use from day to day have been made to demonstrate that the idea of nothingness cannot be. The idea that once energy and matter are interchangeable, it can never be created to add more or taken away to have less. These basic foundational concepts and law demonstrate, demonstrate that things like the Big Bang Theory are just theoretical nonsense. And again, I will point out in my view, for the most part, when people say theoretical, what I hear in my mind is nonsense. But anyhow, Jason, anything before we close down here? Join us for Hour 2. This is going to be a really interesting discussion where we take it from philosophy into tangible nothingness. That's right. So just to reiterate, the YouTube channel is still under two strikes. There will be very short clips there. There will be a single link to Crow 777 Radio. You do not need to log in. The entire first free hour will be there. You just click the play button and you're on your way. Also, Jason will likely run the first free hour on Secrets of Saturn for as long as we're able. But in terms of running anything on Crow 777 on YouTube, it's just not possible. There are two bullying strikes on my channel and it could go away at any moment. So it's just not possible. Possible to have a conversation there on anything that matters. Welcome to the modern age of censorship. But there it is, man. That's the closing of the first hour of episode 82, Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Again, take the single click, come on over to Crow777Radio.com. Don't need to log in, catch the first hour for free. There it is, man. Cheers. Mm-hmm.